Christmas will be here before you know it. So now is the time to prepare your heart with a timeless devotional written by Dr. David Jeremiah called Season of Joy. Enter the Christmas season with restored hope, resounding joy, reassuring peace, and renewed faith. This inspirational book is yours for a gift of any amount in support of Turning Point. And for a gift of $100 or more, you'll receive a four-pack to share the season of joy with others. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. If you're like most believers concerning angels, there's one that you never think about, but you should. In fact, you ignore him at your own peril. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah profiles the fallen angel, Lucifer. From his prideful rise to his perilous fall, Scripture reveals why believers must always be on guard against Satan. Here's David to introduce today's message, The Fallen Angel. And the Bible says he goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And all of us who are Christians have watched as he has devoured some of our friends and loved ones because they were not on guard. Today, the fallen angel from the series, Angels, Who They Are and How They Help. Before we go any further today, let me tell you that you can get all the material on angels that we have created, and it's in a book called Angels, and uh, it's our resource for November, and we want you to have it uh, for a gift of any size to Turning Point. That's right. When you send a gift to Turning Point during the month of November, simply say, please send me the book on angels, and it will be on its way before you know it. We also have a study guide and a set of uh, CDs. That memorialize this teaching, and you can get that from davidjeremiah.org. Also, uh, when you send a gift this month, you can make a choice. You can get the book on angels, which I've already described, or you can get Why the Nativity, the entire movie on a DVD for a gift of any amount. That's right. You can get ready for Christmas by getting Why the Nativity on a DVD, and you'll have it ready to show and share uh, with your family or your friends. Send your gift. Ask for it when you send it, and we'll send it to you right away. And all of that during the month of November as we study angels right here on Turning Point. And let's get started with today's lesson, part one, The Fallen Angel. Today I am teaching on Lucifer, the fallen angel. There's no way to teach on angels without including him. And I think we'll learn some things that will help us as we fight the good fight of faith. But before I start, I want to give you a quiz. And this is a kind of quiz you can respond to by just doing what I ask you to do. It's very simple, and I think you'll catch on very quickly. I'm going to say a word, and I'd like for you to tell me what the opposite of that word is. And just say it right out loud, okay? Here we go. First word, small. Large or big, all right? Good. Everybody's with that one. Darkness. Light. Night. Heaven. Somebody said earth, somebody said hell. I'm not sure. The spiritual people and the non-spiritual people are in there somewhere, all right? Here's this one. God. Satan. Aha. And if I could say the right word after what you just said, I would say not. Because Satan is not the opposite of God. And that may be the best news you will hear all day. Satan is not the opposite of God. Satan is the opposite of Michael. 
Satan could not be God's opposite because, you see, he was created by God. Isn't it interesting how he has duped us into believing that he is God's equal in the realm of evil? When it comes to this fallen angel, what we know as Lucifer or Satan, it seems as if we who are in the Christian church have tendencies that run to the extremes. Either we do not believe in him at all, or we believe in him too much. (laughs) C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his works, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I would say that the vast majority of people today who go by the greater name of Christendom would fall into the first extreme. They have decided that the devil is on the level of myths and mythology. Two rather well-worn poems illustrate these who believe that way. This one written by Dan Crawford is but a few lines and it goes like this. And so they voted the devil out and of course the devil's gone. But simple folk would like to know who carries his business on. (laughs) Good question. And in a little bit longer bit of verse, Alfred J. Howe put these lines together. He said, men don't believe in the devil now as their fathers used to do. They forced the door of the broadest creed to let his majesty through. There isn't a print of his cloven foot or a fiery dart from his bow to be found in earth or air today for the world has voted it so. But who is mixing the fatal draft that palsies heart and brain? And loads the earth of each passing year with 10,000 slain. Who blights the bloom of the land today with the fiery darts of hell? If the devil isn't and never was, won't somebody rise and tell? While we may choose not to believe in the reality of the devil, no one can discount that something like what he's supposed to be doing in the world today is happening all around us. And if he isn't doing it, then pray tell Who is carrying his business on? At the beginning of his great satire and parody called The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis has in his introduction to that classic these words. He says, the commonest question I ever am asked is whether I really believe in the devil. Now, if by the devil you mean a power opposite to God and like God, self-existent from all eternity, the answer is an emphatic no. There is no uncreated being except God. God has no opposite. No being could attain a perfect badness opposite the perfect goodness of God. Satan, the leader or dictator of the devils, is the opposite not of God, but of Michael. And that's an interesting thought. But Satan is real. Whether we believe in him or not, the famed evangelist Billy Sunday was once asked if he believed in a real devil, and he said, yes. They said, why do you believe in the real devil? He said, well, the Bible declares it to be so, and furthermore, I've done business with him in the past. <laughs> Most of us could probably give a testimony or two like that. Martin Luther, the great reformer, one day was so convinced that he was face to face with the devil that he threw an inkwell at him. Did you know that? He later went on to express his encounters with Satan in one of the greatest of the hymns of the church. I dare say that most of us have never really thought carefully about the words which this great man penned in verse for the lyric of this hymn. Here are some of them. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great 
and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And then later, and though the world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Martin Luther about the devil. Now, most of us, if we have lived in this generation aware of the satanic presence, have been treated to a picture of Satan, a man with horns, hooves, and a tail. We have pretty much discounted that because it doesn't seem likely that that's the way he is, and that is not the way he is. The late Vance Havner once said that if the devil were to come to town in a body, you wouldn't find him in a nightclub or in a gambling hall. The world and the flesh look after places like that, he said. You would more likely find him in a pulpit with a DD degree drawing a salary for denying his own existence. <laughs> Vance Havner was right. That's what happens when you get into liberal churches and they say there is no devil. Usually it comes from the pulpit. Well, I want you to know it's foolish for us to underestimate the power of Satan in this world. We should not be fixated on it or dwell on it, but we should be aware of his devices. Blindness to the existence of an enemy makes it impossible to conquer him. I remember reading a story about General George Patton, one of the great military heroes of our country. Back in World War II, he was in a battle in North Africa, and he was reported to have shouted in the midst of that battle, I read your book, Rommel. I read your book. And that he had. Rommel, his enemy general, had written a book called Infantry Attacks. And George Patton got the book and read it and knew every move Rommel was going to make before he made it. He knew what the enemy was all about. Well, we need to know what the enemy is all about. Not so that we can fear him, but so that we can defeat him. And the Bible is very plain about this teaching, which we shall discuss some today. Did you know that there are seven books in the Old Testament that speak of the devil? And every writer in the New Testament mentions him. In fact, there are 29 references to Satan or the devil in the New Testament. And of the 29 references, Jesus Christ is speaking in 25 of them. So if you choose not to believe in Satan, you're not in very good company. Jesus Christ believed in him and spoke of him often in his presentations to his apostles. Today we will trace the fallen angel back to the beginning of his life and we'll see what happened to him. It caused him to give up all that he had that was next to God. There are two Old Testament passages that tell the whole story. And we're going to look at both of them. And I want you to know we're going to do this as quickly as we can. So you need to be prepared to follow along. And if you mark in your Bibles, I'm going to tell you some things you can mark that will help you to be able to go back and recreate this for yourself in the future. He begins this chapter by sending out a judgment against Tyre, which was one of Israel's chief enemies. But in verses 11 through 17 of the 28th chapter, Ezekiel the prophet goes beyond his judgment against Tyre and he goes to judging the power that's really behind the throne. No one can read verses 11 through 17 and attribute them to a human being. They cannot be possibly written of a human being. What Ezekiel is doing is saying that the prince of Tyre is a certain way because standing behind him is the king of Tyre who is none other than Satan. And so verses 11 through 17 tell us a lot 
about the beginning of Satan. And the first thing you need to know, and I hope you will write this down, both in verse 13 and in verse 15, we are told that Satan was created. He was a creation of God. He is therefore not self-existent nor eternal. He is limited and finite. There was a time when he was not. There was a time when he began to be. So every angel, as we've already learned, is created at the same time in the first or second day of creation. God created Lucifer. That's how he got to be here. Now, if you'll look with me at this passage of scripture, I want to give you an outline to show you what he was like at the beginning of his creation. It is truly amazing to me how beautifully endowed was Lucifer. The significance of his fall from heaven can only be understood when you understand a little bit about everything that he had at the beginning. Notice, first of all, his perfection. He was perfect in three ways, intellectually, physically, and actually. In verse 12, we are told he was full of wisdom. In verse 12, we were told he is perfect in beauty. In fact, Ezekiel 28, 13 describes the beauty of Lucifer. Read the verse and notice all of the gems that are used to describe his beauty. Gems which reflect the glory of God. You see, Lucifer didn't have any light of his own, but he was a great reflector. And he was built in such a way so as to reflect the glory of God. In fact, the word that is described of him in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, that word means the shining one. Satan was in his beginning a beautiful creature designed specifically to reflect the glory of God. In fact, we read in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that we should not be surprised because Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He is still doing that today. He is a picture of beauty. He's not the ugly creature that we've created in our drawings and mythology. Something that's most interesting to me because of my love for music is found in the 13th verse at the very end. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but this is truly an amazing thing about the original Lucifer. It says at the end of the verse, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Now watch this. It was not necessary for Lucifer to learn how to play a musical instrument in order to praise God. If you please, he had a built-in pipe organ. Lucifer, because of his beauty, did what a musical instrument would do in the hands of a skilled musician. Lucifer didn't have to look for someone to play the organ so that he could sing the doxology. He was the doxology. Terry Law, who has written on this passage of scripture, says, Pipes were apparently built into his very body. Notice that pipes is plural, meaning more than one. He was a master musician. And I am inclined to believe that God created him with the harmony of sound and chord in the wind instruments. Pipes were the basic structure for melody as we know it. And then it says in this passage of scripture that he also had timbrels or tambrettes, which are what we understand to be percussion instruments. They would give him the ability to give rhythm to the music that he played. And back in verse 11, there's a reference to vials or violins or stringed instruments. Satan had been given a very special, very distinctive commission from God to minister unto him and cover his glory with music through worship and praise. He was a walking orchestra. Whenever Satan came into the presence of God, he not only could sing the music, he played, he accompanied himself from his own body. And that was the distinctive, creative purpose that God gave to him. He was one of God's best works of creation for the purpose of praising God in heaven. And then in verse 15, we're told that his perfection was actual. He was perfect in his ways from the days he was created. 
So don't anybody tell you that Satan was created by God. God created Lucifer and Lucifer became Satan of his own will. Otherwise you implicate God in the creation of evil and you know that's not possible. Notice his place. Where did he live? I can't take you to all these scriptures and go into detail, but if you'll just underline them in your Bibles, you will find out quickly where he lived. Verse 13, Eden, the garden of God. Verse 14, the holy mountain of God. Verse 14, he walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Verse 18, he defiled your sanctuaries. He lived in the sanctuary. Lucifer, before his fall, had access to the throne of God. He lived in the second heaven, which is interstellar space, but he was able to go into the third heaven where God dwelt. And he came often before the throne of God to worship him and to praise him. He lived in heaven. And then notice his power, verse 14. You are the anointed cherub who covers. Here you can see Lucifer's exalted position at the time of creation. He was one of the cherubs that could look upon the face of God and praise and give thanksgiving to him. The cherubim were of the highest orders of angels as we've learned in our series. And Lucifer was the chief of the cherubim. He was the head of all the cherubim in heaven. But then we note, and this passage goes into it to some degree, his pride. And there are five statements concerning his rebellion. Once again, look down at your Bibles. Verse 15, till iniquity was found in you. Verse 16, you became filled with violence within. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Verse 17, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Verse 18, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Something happened in the heart of Lucifer after he was created as such a beautiful creature. His pride got a hold of him, and we'll see that in a moment. And ultimately, he was banished or punished. Notice number five, his punishment. There are six statements concerning his fall in this passage. Verse 16, therefore I cast you out as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. Verse 16, I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Verse 17, I cast you to the ground. Verse 17, I laid you before kings that they may gaze at you. Verse 18, I brought fire from your midst and it devoured you. Verse 18, I turned you to ashes upon the earth. When Lucifer became Satan because of the sin of his own heart, he was banished from heaven. And that introduces us to Isaiah chapter 14. And turn over there real quickly, will you? For Isaiah 14 begins where Ezekiel chapter 28 leaves off. Isaiah chapter 14 begins in the text that we are reading from, beginning at verse 12. And it says this. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cast down to the ground? Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, tells us what really happened in Lucifer's heart when he rebelled. And I know you have questions about this, and I'm not going to answer all of them, but I'm going to get to a couple of them in a minute. But I want you to see what happened, what his rebellion was all about. In the 13th and 14th verses... There are five times where Satan or Lucifer says, I will. If you're underlining in your Bibles, look down there and underline those five I wills. Because those five I wills will tell you more about the enemy of your soul than just about anything else you will find in the Bible. Those five I wills tell you what happened in Lucifer's heart when he decided it was no longer good enough to be a perfect angel created in the beauty of God. I want you to notice these five I wills, and I'll put them together so that they make contemporary sense to us. First of all, number one, 
Lucifer decided that he wanted God's place. I will ascend to heaven. That's his first I will. According to the Bible, there are three heavens. There's the heaven that surrounds the earth, which we know as the atmosphere. The second heaven is the interstellar space where the angels mostly dwell. And the third heaven is the abode of God. Satan, dwelling in the second heaven, decided it was no longer good enough to be a tourist into the third heaven and visit the throne of God. He wanted to move into the place that belonged to God alone and put God off of his throne and take his place. He wanted God's place. I will ascend to heaven. Secondly, he wanted God's position. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. If you've been with us during this series, you know that the stars of God are an Old Testament expression for the angels. Job 38 verse 7. Lucifer was never commander in chief of the angelic army. He was a five-star general, but he was never commander in chief. He was in charge of the cherubim, but he never was the one who originated the orders. When he said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, he was saying, I am not happy just being in charge of the cherubim. I want sole authority over all the angels, and I don't want to submit myself to the authority of the creator. I will become the absolute ultimate. I will originate all the orders that are given to the angels, and I will eliminate God from the whole scene. That's what his heart was. Number three, Lucifer wanted God's power. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. In this statement, Lucifer declares his desire to control all the affairs of the entire universe. The expression, mount of the congregation, is an Old Testament expression that appears several times. It speaks of absolute control. It expresses that which belongs only to God. Here are two passages you can look at that will help you to understand it. Isaiah 2.2. Shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Absolute autonomy and authority which belongs to God only. Or Psalm 48 two, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. This one, Lucifer, who said, I want to move in and occupy heaven. And I want to bring all the angels under my absolute authority, reached out in his desire for power and said, I also want to bring the entire created universe under my control and include it in my sphere of authority. I want to be in charge of everything. Not good enough to be number two. I want to be number one. I want to call all the shots. I don't want to live under the umbrella of the glory of God. Number four, Lucifer wanted God's perfection. Watch this. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Did you know that there are over 150 references to clouds in the Bible? Well, watch this. Over 100 of the 150 references to clouds in the Bible have to do with the presence and the glory of God. Not where rain comes from, but the presence and glory of God. I put a couple of the references together so you can see what I mean. First of all, Exodus 16.10. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Exodus 40.34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 1 Kings 8.10. And it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. 
And Matthew 24, 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power. And what's the rest of it? Great glory. What was Satan saying when he said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds? What Lucifer was saying here was that he was going to take to himself a greater glory than the glory of God. Hmm. He's the fallen angel. We'll have some more of this tomorrow as we continue our discussion of angels. One of the most uh, talked about subjects among Christians and how angels fit into our life. And perhaps you did not know that Satan was once an angel, a creation who rebelled against God. And the rebellion uh, is the beginning of all the trouble we have in our world today. One day he will be put in his place. And uh, the Bible tells us that uh, he will be in the lake of fire forever and ever. Hey, during this month, we're making available to you some really cool resources that I want to tell you about. If you send a gift of any size during this month to help us with uh, underwriting all of this media thing that we do around the world and especially here in America, we'll send you the book on angels that captures everything we're teaching during this month. You can also get the movie, Why the Nativity, if you want it on DVD or the book, Why the Nativity. Choose one. Send your gift, ask for it when you send it, and we'll send it to you right away, and we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, Angels, Who They Are and How They Help, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of David's book, Angels, Who They Are and How They Help, What the Bible Reveals. Uplifting and helpful, it's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James Versions available in several distinctive cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, Angels, Who They Are and How They Help, on Turning Point. Turning Point presents the Jeremiah Study Bible, drawing on more than 40 years of study by Dr. David Jeremiah. Take your personal Bible study deeper with unique introductions to each book of the Bible. 55 full-page articles exploring the essential themes of the Christian life. 8,000 study notes with insightful and practical content, an extensive cross-reference system, and helpful sidebars that extend to topics beyond the study notes. You can also take advantage of online resources available to you at jeremiahstudybible.com. Great for individual or small group studies, this Bible is available in the New King James and New International versions in standard or large print, as well as the English Standard Version in standard print with several cover options. For more information or to order your copy, go to davidjeremiah.ca slash jsb. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash jsb. Parents are especially guilty of this minor offense, making promises to their children. We say, sweetheart, I have to miss your recital tonight because of work, but I promise I'll be at the next one. 
Promises add little to life except heightened expectations and sometimes deeper disappointments. Saying, I promise, is like shouting to emphasize a doubtful statement, like a preacher who pounds the pulpit when he knows his words are weak. Instead, we should let our faithfulness and our performance speak for themselves. Jesus said we're better off not making promises. Instead, we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover how God keeps His Word on Route 66. Route 66, driving the Word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.